Welcome to the Jonah Gary Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Rafe Bartholomew. Rafe is a terrific writer and editor, a former colleague at Grantland, did yeoman's work running that, uh, doing a lot for that website, a lot, a lot, a lot, especially in the latter days. I'll be eternally grateful for that. Uh, and a previous guest on the podcast back in 2010, uh, he came on to talk about his book Pacific Rims, which is about basketball in the Philippines. Really cool. You should totally check that out. And you should also check out his latest uh, book. He co-authored it with Jackie McMullen and Dan Clores also gets credit for it. And the premise of it is uh, Clores did a bunch of kind of short stories, you could say, essentially video short stories and enlisted Jackie and Rafe to go through uh, all kinds of footage and curate the best of it to come up with something in book form. And so this is what you get with this book. It has everything. It's like the CCNY scan- gambling scandal and the rise of women's basketball and Oscar Robertson and Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Connie Hawkins and 80s basketball with Magic and Bird and Jordan and LeBron. And it's, it's great. It's really so fun. Uh, my wife Amy was joking because I, I was just – I was yelling like, oh, this and an Oscar. And I, just when I get excited about an interview, I can't help it. And so the volume in this podcast, you might need to turn it down. Rafe too. I mean, we were both really getting into it, just super excited about all these great old stories. I feel like you know, baseball does a really good job of that. Oh, here's another Babe Ruth book. Here's another Ted Williams book, whatever. But basketball – of course, there's great history books, no question about it, but it just feels like it's not as much of a cottage industry as it is with baseball. So I just really enjoyed having that perspective for this. And of course, it's told from the mouths of guys, uh, well, and women who are still alive. And so, you know, in this, in some cases, you have Bob Cousy talking about basketball in the fifties. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's really, really a lot of fun. So go pick up basketball, a love story. Uh, you will dig it. And thank you to Rafe for coming on the podcast. It was super swell. Also super swell is the first of this week's sponsors, and that is Zip Recruiter. Hey, would you like to know what's not smart? I will tell you what's not smart. It's making the lottery the centerpiece of your retirement plan. That is a dumb idea. Not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash pick to hire the right person. Listen, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, listeners of the John Kerry Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. At this exclusive web address, are you ready? Here it is. ZipRecruiter.com slash pick. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash pick, as in P-I-C-K. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash pick. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Thank you to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast. Some programming notes. I am going through every major league team for CBS Sports. It's our off-season extravaganza in which I look at every team, what happened in the most recent season in 2018, what can we expect for 2019 in the future, what might happen during free agency, all that good stuff. We just wrapped up the NL East, so you will find articles on the Mets and the Marlins and the Braves and the Phillies and the Nationals. Uh, those are all up on CBSSports.com. And more to come. We're going to go NL Central, West, and we're going to get to the American League, and we're going to get to all 30 teams. Uh, I'll also be doing a little bit of writing for this uh, offseason for Sportsnet. Look for a couple articles on uh, guys who are on the Hall of Fame ballot who have previously played for the Blue Jays and will be wearing, weighing the merits of their respective Hall of Fame cases. So that should be fun as well. Also fun is the next sponsor of the Jonah Carey Podcast, 
I bet you can guess who it is. I bet you can guess. If you've listened to this podcast before, it's 8,000 iterations. You know what it is? Of course it's SeatGeek. It's obviously SeatGeek. SeatGeek has been sponsoring this podcast since the Mesozoic era. I don't even know if that's a real era, but I'm going to say that it is. SeatGeek is phenomenally fantastic, terrific, amazing. Listen, it's the best place to buy uh, tickets to anything you could possibly want. We are talking about concerts and baseball and basketball and football and hockey and anything. All of it. It's great. Hey, you know, you're going to a baseball game and maybe you want to, you know, you think you're going to sit in the bleachers. But no, it turns out that the best seats or the best bang for your buck might be behind home plate or in the upper deck or first base side or whatever. Same with you're going to a concert. Listen, it's hockey and basketball season. You want tickets to that. It's not cheap, but SeatGeek finds a way to get you the ticket that you want to the game that you want at the price that you want. They are fantastic. I have used Seek myself for concerts, for baseball, for hockey, for just about every kind of event that you can imagine. And they're great. And people come to me and say, what's that referral code again? You know what? I'm going to tell you what the referral code is so that you can get your 20 bucks off because you should do it. It's real money. I have experienced this 20 bucks. Friends of mine who've used it, who aren't necessarily, you know what? Frankly, they don't even listen to the podcast. They're just aware that SeatGeek exists and it's a good service. They say, hey, do me a favor and hook me up with the thing. Very easy. You download the SeatGeek app. You enter the promo code Jonah. That's it today. You'll get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Literally any event that you want. You are going and you say, I would like to go for $20 less than it would be to go to this event. Maybe the event costs 40. Maybe it costs 4,000. You're getting your 20 bucks off. You just go to SeatGeek app and you enter the promo code Jonah at checkout and you'll get $20 off of your SeatGeek first SeatGeek purchase. It is that easy. That's all you have to do. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast as always. Love those guys. Hey, you know what? You should go ahead and listen to this edition of the Jonah Carey podcast. It's with Rafe Bartholomew. It's a lot of basketball talk and it's really good. So, we are delighted to be joined right now by the current features editor of Eater.com. He is the co-author of Basketball, A Love Story, and the hardworking, nay, tireless former editor, one of the editors, at Grantland.com, which I hear is a website where content went up on the internet. It's Rafe Bartholomew. Rafe, how's it going? Hey, Jonah, what's up? As as our pal Zach Lowe used to say very often, Grantland was a site that used to exist on the Internet. That is correct. You are a two-time uh, now appearance on the podcast. This is – I always like it. I, you know, on SNL, they have the five-timers club, and then you go with Steve Martin and stuff like that, and you get a jacket. I don't know. I'm wearing the Grantland hoodie completely coincidentally. I didn't realize it until your face came up on the screen. But I, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not sure what it is that people should get. I guess I'll give you an Expos hat if you get the five. I, that would be wow. Getting to five, that you know how old <laughs> at the pace we are at because the first time was in 2010, probably. Was it that for, long ago? Yeah, Pacific Rims was a while ago. It was. That's when it came out. Wow. So that would mean. Uh, 
uh, in what uh, thirty two years, I'll be ready for for my jacket. I'll take it. Yeah, well, it's yeah, I forgot that it predated Grandland by a fair bit, and we didn't know that we'd end up working together and all that good stuff. Pacific Rims, by the way, is great for people who've not heard of it or read it or whatever. First of all, go back and listen to that episode of the podcast. That's 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 quite a while ago. Gosh, eight years ago, <laughs> lots of stuff has happened in the last eight years. But it's a great book. It talks about um, the passion that people have for basketball. In the Philippines. Actually, let's do the boilerplate just as a reminder to people of, of what made it. You ended up living there and it became part of your life and everything like that. And you chose to write about it. And it was such a cool and different story that I did, I really didn't know very much about that people are just obsessed with basketball in the Philippines. Yeah, and that's been one of the great things of the last eight years watching since I, I you know, I, I moved to the Philippines in 2005 yep. and lived there for a little over three years and ended up writing this book about the role of basketball in Philippine culture. Mm-hmm. And it became this parallel life for me. I've gone, I've been back to the country almost every year since I moved Ooh. back to the States in 2008. And that all the book and Philippine basketball really did launch a lot of other things in my career. I got hired at Grantland because our other co, uh, former coworker, Jay Kang mm. had read the book and, and we knew each other because of that. So it really did start a lot of things for me. And, uh, anyway, uh, it, it, Pacific Rims is a book about the, the love affair of, of the, the Philippines with basketball. If anyone cares about it, it's still out and it's still in print. I'm happy about that. It's great. I, I really, really enjoyed the book. Uh, I got hired because I also wrote a book, but that really wasn't what did it. It was that I was sitting at a table across from our old boss, Mr. Bill Simmons at the Sloan Analytics Conference. And there were a lot of people gathered around him and kind of nobody on the other side of the table. I just grabbed the seat. And he pointed to this guy who looked like Mark Twain sitting next to me and said, Dad, Dad, that's the guy who wrote that book. You should talk to him about baseball. And so I was like, oh, that's his dad. And I think I got hired because I made a good impression on his dad more than my uh, professional accomplishments, which I guess is okay. Whatever gets us there is fine. Once you're in the door, you go in and you do your best and and – Take it from there. And I mean, it worked out for all of us, I think, in that situation it, with that website. It worked out for all of us. It was, it was a good time. It was a website that existed on the internet. So this book, Basketball Love Story, I had Jackie McMullen on and it is the strangest thing because I had her on a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. And at the time, I did not know about the book. I, I, I knew that, uh, Dan Clores was doing something, but I, I guess it was out of my zone. And I was just, it was Jackie Mack. I was like, Oh my God, let's talk basketball, Jackie Mack. You're my hero. You're the best. And then she said, you know that I have a book coming out. I said, what? And we just tacked it on to the end. I said, okay, well, we just spent an hour talking about other stuff. Now I'm going to have to go find a co-author. Oh, look, Rafe Bartholomew is a co-author. I bet I I have his phone number. I think I can text him and ask him. And uh, I knew it would be good. Uh, I know Dan's work just a little bit peripherally. I've never met him. I know that he's a really uh, hard worker when it comes to gathering source material. And you guys were able to distill it in such a cool way. And there are 10 million stories and I love basketball, and I love stories of old basketball and all that. Um, you know, it, it, part of me is just like, well, let's talk about Bird and Magic and Jordan or whatever. But what impresses me about the book is that you uncover stuff that unless you're really, really diehard, you might not know about. And even if you know about it, you don't know all the particulars. And one place I want to start is with the gambling scandals of basketball. So uh, most of my career has been made in the baseball realm, and obviously that shaped the game very much so. You know, the Black Sox scandal way back in the day – to Pete Rose, to that was just like the third rail that you couldn't touch. But it was this wasn't like a one-off, like maybe a World Series or whatever. This was it took over college basketball because the problem that exists today in college basketball 
has always existed in college basketball, which is that guys play for their school and the school makes revenue. I mean, not the same revenue in 1951 as 2018, but this was an opportunity for corruption because you had poor kids coming in and playing and what have you. And so here comes, you know, players for CCNY, a whole bunch of other New York schools. There were basically two or three gambling scandals, right? And, and it really consumed the sport in a way that not only took over college basketball, but as we later see, which I didn't know that much about, had enduring impact on guys like Connie Hawkins in the pro game. I thought, oh my God, this, this is more, this is a more elaborate explanation of this than I have read maybe anywhere. Yeah, I, there there are some great, of course, like anything, there are some other great books that that cover sure. it. But we haven't, you know, most of us have not been able to read everything about everything. Yeah. It's just a fact of life, right? Um, you know, uh, Charlie Rosen, before he was known as as Phil Phil, Phil Jackson's kind of like um, mouthpiece mm-hmm. at the Knicks and then all oh, that whole weird affair, had, wrote a, a really really comprehensive, well reported and, and lovely, you know, well written book called foul about the connie hawkins and jack molina scandal mm. um but yeah you're while well, putting the book together reading the the players and coaches early descriptions of what it was like to play in a place like the old madison square garden before <laughs> before the gambling scandals broke mm-hmm. was pretty incredible because they, it was just out in the open they're talking about uh, gamblers waving twenty and fifty twenty dollar bills or fifty dollars in their hands at players as they shoot free throws on the baseline, and that the old garden had an entire bank of telephones that everyone ran to during halftime. The payphones, if you can remember, if you can imagine, mm-hmm. if we can at this point in time imagine payphone stalls, <laughs> a bank of them, a whole wall of these people running and lining up to call their bookies at halftime and place their bets for the rest of the game. This was college basketball and er, like pre 1960s NBA basketball as well. This was just part of the sport back then. And speaking of that era. So, I mean, I grew up a Celtics fan and my dad was a Russell fan. So it was just kind of passed down to me. And, you know, I've heard the tales of Russell and all that, but it's so interesting to me because before those teams and even like pre Russell Kuzi, the beginning of his career that's when the fast break starts, and it feels like that's when you start to have the delineation point of basketball. And this book almost begs for a prequel because it's like, what was basketball like in 1953? You know, and, and you get the impression, first of all, you know, integration really came on afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say this as, as diplomatically as I can, baseball is still a very white sport. So it integrated and the sport got better as a result. But basketball is really majority African American has been for quite a long time. And it is bonkers to me to think, oh, yeah, the best guy was this guy who was five foot ten and was Jewish or whatever, that it was just such a, a different kind of thing that Larry Brown could be a superstar. You know, that 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 just it resonates in this way. Like that guy, that guy, the coach, you're talking the Indiana Pacers guy, the UCLA guy. So, I mean, what were we talking about? How dramatically did those Celtics teams transform the sport? Because it seemed like no running. Set shots were still pretty much in vogue. Athleticism wasn't really, people played below the rim versus above the rim. It feels like that's kind of when things start to tilt the other way. Yeah, and you look at those Celtics and, and Bill Russell, who would, along with Wilt Chamberlain and, yeah. and then a little later, Elgin Baylor, the, the trans, the, the athletes who really did transform basketball in their, in each in slightly different ways, but overall, they, 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 they help usher in this athleticism. Um, 
the and the Celtics were were really the fastest playing team of that era because they had Russell who was going to control the boards and his his outlet pass was always going to be there uh you know sort of bef- often before he touched the ground right is the the great myth of of Bill Russell he was catching the ball in the air turning in the air and throwing it to 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 Bob Cousy to lead the break uh and, and it often was like that um and one of the the interesting things about the the early part of the game and it, it doesn't get into the book in the the deepest possible way but hopefully there's some some echoes of it and it was definitely in all of the the research the transcripts that we read through to put together the book mm. was that you know it well pre full integration of the game yes there were you know maybe maybe it was before basketball became what is today known as a black sport yeah. uh, which is, I, I don't think is a that's not controversial anything, no. right right um, apologies so, to Danilo Gallinari but it is pretty much you, yeah, you didn't hit on uh, that. but at the same time it, it it may have actually always been a a black sport, to be honest, because there were these other leagues. Yes. The, the NBA had a quota, mm-hmm. which was everyone knew about, which was never official. But NBA teams were at first not supposed to have more than two black players per team, just enough for one guy and a roommate. Yeah. Uh, then it then it was three, and then you were mentioning the Celtics. Red Auerbach was the first coach and general manager to start five a full. A, a fully African American starting five, uh, and because you know to, to Red's credit. He lived up to always the idea of always being about winning. Uh, but in those days, in the, in the fifties, sixties, into the seventies a little bit, you know, really until the, the, the ABA became a real yeah. threat to the NBA and, and forced them to open up the doors to it to pretty much and the best players available. Mm-hmm. Um, there were leagues like the Eastern League and these industrial leagues. Um, and the AAU was still kind of like a commercial league at the time. It was not the, the, uh, the amateur, yeah. you know, high school racket that it is today. And this is where the black, the, the great black players who for whatever reason didn't make it onto NBA teams played back then. And, and you have guys in the book like Satch Sanders from the Celtics yeah. talking about they would go up to play in the Catskills or they would play at the Rutgers park in the summers and and see all these black players who weren't on the NBA because of quotas, but they were as good as anybody and often better than a lot of players in the league back then. Mm. It's so interesting too, because I'm not even sure if this is a question. I'm just pontificating a little bit, but like, I think Boston, Boston has always had its issues with, with racial division and busing and so forth. And despite it being a Northern city, that's always very much been a part of its identity. And you know, it, it, it takes time to get over that. And it feels like the baseball legacy in Boston kind of added a little bit of a, um, a negative tinge, too, because Boston was the last team to integrate. They ended up with a guy named Pumpsy Green, who was not Jackie Robinson or Larry Doby. Eventually, it set the stage for other guys. But it, it came down to ownership, that it was Tom Yockey, was the uh, owner of the team, was extremely racist. Very, 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 even for his time, was racist. And did not care about, about winning above all else. And here's Red, and we're talking roughly the same time frame. It's the 50s, pretty much, and Red just says, I don't care. And it's funny to me that Boston didn't seem to get the retrospective halo effect that came with fielding an all-black starting lineup 
it was that they got the negativity of the baseball thing more. And I, I don't know if it was because baseball is more part of the public consciousness in the fifties and basketball was, but we never ended up on, on that realm. And, you know, maybe it has nothing to do with the city. Maybe neither has nothing to do with the city. It's that Yaki's one guy and Orbach is another guy and it's irrelevant who is in the stands. But that always struck me that sports added more of a sense that Boston was a racist city in that time to me than, than it should have given that on the basketball side, it was completely the opposite. No, it's true. It's one of those strange things about about Boston in general. I, and I'm not I mean, I'm not from Boston. Yeah. I don't know the city well enough to really speak for it. But the it, it, you know, Massachusetts is often in many elections, the bluest state, yes, the most is. democratic state in all of all 50 United States. So uh, yet uh, that it also, you know, it's it's capital, its biggest city. You know, it's, it's one major national city. It also carries this this reputation for also just being a a little uh, being a racist place. And uh, I, I guess it's, somehow Sash Sanders is is star is the star of this podcast so far. He, he he has another quote about playing in Boston where he he talks about people used to ask him how could you play in Boston is so racist, mm. and he was like, well, how could where where do you want me to play in America that is not where I'm not going to experience racism? And he and he's right even. Even in New York, even even in cities that we, you know, have always been viewed or for not maybe not always, but for the last 50, 100 years have we've thought of as the most progressive cities in the nation. Black players are still and they they talk about in the book still encountering racism in New York, Los Angeles, wherever, wherever. So uh, it's it's hard to it's, it's one of those weird contradictions about Boston. You can't quite figure out. Will Chamberlain. I've read lots of Will Chamberlain stuff over the years and I I wish I was there because I'm trying to picture who's like by modern standards who's Russell and who's Chamberlain. The Russell thing that I could come up with is he's like Rudy Gobert. Like totally completely dominates one end. You do not want him shooting Jays, but man oh man, completely a shutdown player. But if Rudy Gobert was considered like the best player in the league, or if Rudy Gobert had four other stars and the best coach, he does have a pretty good coach actually, and had all this stuff going on. All right. Chamberlain's like Dwight Howard and Shaq and like he's like considered was like a, you know, selfish player, which is sort of like Dwight Howard. Shaq he could dominate except Shaq could win multiple titles. There is no corollary to Chamberlain. Chamberlain was just like the guy and could do anything that he wanted except win championships until later in his career, which is mental to me. And I get that he went up against, you know, maybe the dynasty in modern sports, maybe more than the 50s Yankees, maybe more than the Montreal Canadiens, maybe more than the Green Bay Packers of those years that the Celtics were so good that they couldn't be beaten. But the way that Chamberlain gets portrayed is not just that he happened to be going up against the Celtics to me. It's that there was something about him that just he was such a glory hound for his stats that all he seemed to care about was his stats. Where do you fall on this? Is it, oh, here's this guy he wants to average a triple-double or, or he only cares about the numbers? Or he just was a victim of circumstance and went up against these badass mofos in Boston who would beat any anybody. They could beat anybody in that era. I think overall, I'm I, on balance. I am of the opinion that Wilt Chamberlain is somewhat underrated historically because oh. because of just how he, he when it came down to it, he always lost to Russell. Right. Russell won. I mean, be, and and but it's interesting how because they were these two dominant big men of their eras that it, that falls on them 
that falls on Wilt more than all the other players who lost to the Russell Celtics. We don't, we don't hold Oscar Robertson or Jerry West or Elgin Baylor as, uh, responsible for, for not being able to get over the hump against those Celtics, uh, compared to, to Will Chamberlain. They're all of the same era. Robert, Oscar, you know, Big O is the only, only guy other than Chamberlain or Russell to win a, uh, a, a league MVP during the, what the, 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 like I think 60 to 68. Um, so the, and also just because, uh, so much of the, uh, the way we understand Russell is, is dictated by the today's writers, pundits, media. Yes. Who are, who are from Boston. I mean, we worked for Bill Simmons, who is the most important basketball writer of our era. Bob um, Ryan before him. I mean, certainly, yeah. And, and, and they, right. And these guys are from Boston, love Boston, saw Boston, <laughs> and give us the Boston side of the story. And it was interesting while putting the book together to go through and see what some of Wilt's teammates or the people or the guys from Philadelphia, like Sonny Hill, who's a Philadelphia old time legend, you know, started the Baker League, which is their their Rucker their Rucker mm-hmm. League in Philly. Um, he he says no one in history has ever been better than Wilt Chamberlain. Like he does not even hesitate. And you have Joe Rucklick, who was one of Wilt's uh, teammates in the Philadelphia Warriors, talking Quoted about at Wilt in like, this book. I didn't right. know anything about this guy. I was like, oh, he's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and he has his own reasons to be very pro Wilt. He was very close. They were very close friends, and they were kind of linked throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Rucklick ended up being the guy who assisted the point, the the last bucket of the one in the one hundred point game. Um, so they are the so so these are people who obviously have their own biases in favor of Philly and in favor of Wilt. The same way the Boston people have their biases for for Russell. Um, so I think. Uh, that Wilt gets a little bit underestimated or, or undervalued overall, but at the end of the day, man, you know, you cannot argue with, with the record that, that Bill Russell and those Celtics put together, whether it's all because, I mean, it's, it, of course, it's never all because of one player in, in basketball or even, or any sport, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, basketball, one of the more free flowing sports where everyone is connected. Um, but you, you just can't, you can't, argue with uh, you know as much as we like to pump the brakes on on straight up rings with the seven z's and Not 12 right. hashtags, right. uh, it's that's that's the equalizer if you if you've done all that you can't really argue against it um but you i think i think i would argue for bringing in a little more nuance to how we understand wilt and how great he actually was rather than just saying he lost these. He lost this many times to Russell. It's not like anybody else could stop him. He did pretty well against, I don't know, Nate Thurman or whoever else. Like he, he was, he was Russell was the one guy who could go at him, but that was about it. It's it's funny too. The hundred point game. I wonder. You know, there's an interesting debate maybe to be had there because on the one hand, it's a hundred points, like it's the record in basketball. Kobe, when he dropped in '81, it was like an alien came. They're like, "How could that happen?" And that's you know, twenty percent more or twenty-five percent more points than that. It's mental. But he did it in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and nobody was there, and there were very few media members there. Does that game take on more mystique because it was in the most obscure venue ever, and nobody was there, or less? And it would have been an even bigger deal if it was at Madison Square Garden or whatever. I, there is, I guess it gains a little bit of mystique 
on account of no one being able to see it and only yeah. the people you know who actually witnessed it with their eyes being able to recount things that happened but I think that's less valuable overall, at least in terms of having people remember it, than footage yeah. or being around to tell the story himself. You know, Wilt, Wilt died, what, 20, 20 more than 20 years ago? Yeah. Uh, and so he hasn't been around, especially in this era when this, there's huge, great explosion of basketball media and interest in the sport. And we all want to unearth every story yeah. that was ever of interest about the game. Now would have been the time that people could have gone back to him and done the oral histories of this game, done all of the stuff, have Wilt tell his own, explain his own greatness in his own words. And that I think probably would be a big difference. Uh, in terms of having the public accept his own side of the narrative, he's just not around to toot his own horn. And that's not, that's not like Bill Russell is, is much, much is a particularly braggadocious individual, no, right? He's, no. he's very reserved. Yeah. He's kind of above it all, but he, he, there, you don't, he, at this point in time, it's really a, a one-sided story. And, uh, and I think if Wilt had lived longer, we would have heard more of, of the other side. We, you know, you talk about putting a modern stamp on players of, of the previous era. Mm-hmm. And Oscar, you know, there's, we have a stat called usage rate now. And, and a lot of people listen to this podcast might be, maybe they're baseball fans or whatever fan. They might not know what usage rate is. Usage rate just means how involved are you in the game, basically? How much do you dominate the ball? How much do you dominate the flow of play? The guys that you would expect, you know, Giannis and LeBron and these guys tend to dominate usage rate. I don't think we could do that retroactively as far as I know. I don't think it goes back as far as Oscar, but I have to feel like he's like two LeBrons. Like that it was just Oscar that, you know, eventually he eventually teamed up with Alcindor and that was fine. Uh, but this guy completely took over the game. You know, it was like triple doubles were not a thing, but he could put them up and he would post you up at six, four, six, five, but he also ran past you and there was no really, but he'd like him. You know, West could shoot. Okay, there were other guys who could shoot. Chamberlain, of course, was a singular talent, but he had Russell as a foil. It wasn't like there was another Oscar. There wasn't anybody remotely with that skill set that I could think of. Like, Elgin was powerful in 6'5", also, but not really the same player. It feels like he gets lost a bit to the sands of time that we just, okay, the Celtics and the Lakers were the big pillars and whatever. Oscar was ridiculous, man. Like, it's like LeBron crossed with Curry, crossed with, like, a center. He just did everything. And, and I, you know... There's a lot of talking here about Oscar, but some of it has to do with the impact that he had on almost the off the court stuff. And we almost overlooked the fact that, oh, holy crap, like this guy's just, he's a, he's a phantom. He's a guy that you cannot replicate ever. T- take me through a little bit what kind of player he was. Uh, because again, I can't think of a comp. You know, LeBron is this big guy who does everything, but even that I don't think quite sums it up. Yeah, you know, God, trying to come up with one, it might be someone like LeBron who was a, who, who basically is uh, one of the bigger players on the court at any given time and is also the best passer on the court and, and running, you know, sees the floor better than, than everyone else and, and is doing, is, is really is capable of doing anything. Oscar was that in his time and, and being a, about six foot five as, as a point guard in that era was very big in, in days when, 
even into the mid seventies, you, the players in this book are, are talking about how rare it was to find forwards who could really handle the ball. I mean, Jerry West is about six three and they talk about how the Lakers needed to get Gail Goodrich to come handle the ball because West was having a hard time getting it up the floor against guys like Walt Frazier when the Lakers played yeah. the Knicks in the, in the, in the finals. So, uh, the, the idea that Oscar was, Bigger than all the guards, as way stronger than all the guards, and also as fast, could compete on almost every level. He was one of these transformational players. And that's, that's one of these interesting things when you talk about how do you compare these older players to someone now? It's, it's almost, it's almost you want to look past the idea of who fits the same mold yeah. or who has the same body type to who changes the game or changes the out the, the the way that basketball is played in similar ways or who who so with someone like yeah and it it's much harder to do like like you were mentioning earlier with the big men because yeah. there there hasn't been a transformational big man really since probably Shaq uh and and it's hard, he didn't even he almost didn't Shaq didn't it seems like didn't even transform basketball but was the end of the dominant. He's almost is the bookmark of, of big man dominance. That's right. Cause no one has ever come and done the same thing since. And, and his, his impact hasn't really been carried on or built upon, but it was really just sort of like, then it dissolved after that. And the big man has been, uh, in for various reasons, his role has been reduced. The perimeter um, players too. They're, they're Porzingis and town shooting threes on yeah. you now. Totally different game. Absolutely. Um, so with somebody like Oscar, I really, I, you, you mentioned LeBron. It, it might be that I can't yeah. come up with anyone better than that in terms of size and vision and, and ability to run a team and, and basically do everything. What the hell happened in the 72 Olympics? Oh man. <laughs> uh, I, it's interesting. There, there, there's, there's a revisionist take on this that maybe it wasn't as controversial as our guys, uh, I mean, you, I'm sorry, I don't need to, I mean, need to lump you into uh, I'm in America. Right I'm back in my home. That's right. <laughs> uh, but as the U as Team USA uh, portrays it, I mean, and this and the, and our chapter on the book is that 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 focuses on the 1972 Olympics is told through the the through Doug Collins, Mike Bantam. All the guys who were there on the Atomic Millen, the guys who were on the floor for the USA. So that's definitely the side that's represented. There is a side of the story that, oh, well, the first one was a malfunction. The, the, the second time they had to replay the last three things, it was a, it, you know, it was understandable. Uh, there was maybe only one where it was questionable. I don't know that I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that something goes wrong three times in a row. <laughs> At the most important moment in the gold medal game of, of the Olympics in basketball, it's hard to just accept that as, oh, you know, one mistake, then another mistake, and then finally the result that people seem to be pushing for on on the organizational side occurred, uh, which was Team USA losing on a last-second bucket to the, uh, to you know, to the USSR. Um, the... The Doug Collins, we, I mean, obviously basketball fans don't need to be reminded that Doug Collins is a great storyteller every mm-hmm, time you watch mm-hmm, him, mm-hmm. uh, calling a game in the nineties, whether it was with the, on NBC or when he was on ESPN later on. He's, he is great. He's great in this book. Um, I, I, I was really touched because by the, the relationship he had with the head coach of that team, Hank Iba, who is not, 
doesn't really come off great. I mean, he's backwards looking. He has this athletic team USA group playing, uh, like literally doing the, the, the high school practice joke routine of having to pass five times before putting a shot up, playing a, a very slow defensive game that doesn't, doesn't really reflect their advantages over the rest of the world at that point in time. And so he, he takes, Iba takes a lot of knocks, rightfully so, but their mo, Collins still is, he can't, he can't bring himself to criticize him because Iba was the guy who after at the end of this game, when Doug Collins, you know, he steals the ball, he gets, he gets fouled going up for the layup. He's concussed, bleeding, gets like sent head first into the stanchion. Uh, and, and, and Iba and the, and the other coaches are saying, well, who's going to shoot these free throws? And, and Iba says, if Collins can stand up, he's shooting them. And, and, and of course, Doug Collins walks to the line and hits what a lot of people, including in the book, people call the most, the toughest pressure, the two toughest pressure free throws in the history of basketball, drains them both, gives the U.S. a one-point lead, which eventually, I guess, doesn't mean that much. Uh, but as lore, it means a lot. And, and just that relationship, that, that loyalty, that bond, that like, that, you know, Hank Iba is not around today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Collins would not be criticized horribly if he finally came out and said, you know what? Iba really could have done a better job. Like, I, I, looking back on it, we shouldn't have ne- ever been that close with this team. We should have been way ahead of them. Well, all these things. But no, that, I don't know. There's something touching about that, that lifelong bond that, that goes on even after the life of Hank Iba. I love the sections on college basketball, and I admit that my feelings about the sport are a little bit more complicated now that I, you know, eventually you sort of become aware, not that you're not aware before, but you sort of really start to realize, well, wait a minute, we're watching kids who should be making money, and they're not, and what are we doing here? Okay, but I mean, I, you know, grew up in the 80s, and I remember the Georgetown Nova game, and I remember Lorenzo Charles, and I remember all that stuff, all, like, those are, you know, legion in my mind, all those games. And, you know, I'm reading the chapter on it, UNC, and I'm reading the chapter on Coach K, and there's some Bobby Knight discussion and all that. And I guess the question I would have for you is, you know, these are just, these are just state schools, sometimes private schools, but they're just schools. And, and, you know, you don't have, uh, necessarily the same kinds of progression as, as pro teams do that. Okay, the Celtics have a winning tradition and therefore, and the Lakers do whatever. It, it sort of tends to rise up like there was nothing. Duke wasn't really a thing. Yeah, okay, Coach K had a predecessor, but Duke didn't really have that. So, you know, to kind of try to loop multiple chapters together, how does one build a powerhouse in college basketball where one doesn't exist before? What makes it so that people say, oh, I totally want to go to Durham, North Carolina now to play for three years or four years or one year. Now it makes sense because it's been happening. Mark Allery started and now Zion Williamson is playing. But how do these things get off the ground that programs take the leap and become signature stable staples of the sport? Yeah, the and there are so there there really are only a handful of those blue blood college programs in the country and and they do have those deep roots, those histories they 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 were coached by some legend whether it was Frank McGuire at North Carolina, John Wooden at UCLA, Adolph Rupp, Rupp, who of course is his legacy is tainted horribly because of all of his racism. But (laughs) as someone who uh, built up a program Mm -hmm. that, that, that is, that has never really 
dipped in terms of national significance, mm-hmm. uh, that that is also part of of what the, of his legacy and the legacy of Kentucky basketball. Um, and it 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 does seem to always trace back to one coach who was a visionary on some level. Mm. In some cases, it's it's a strategic issue, but I, I don't know, especially in the college game, and maybe that's just because of how we talk about the college game, it, a lot of the time it sounds like these these coaches who started a culture off or, or, or had these long runs, it was about their the way they created yeah. family and culture and this idea of brotherhood within their schools, which, yes, if you look at from through today's lens, it is – it's very hard to accept that stuff at face value because uh, the especially nowadays the people who the players who agree to be part of these brotherhoods uh, are, are are being taken advantage of in in yeah. huge financial yeah. ways um i i guess at, at, if you were trying to defend the NCAA's earlier days you could say and it would, you wouldn't be wrong that that there wasn't nearly as much money involved that it wasn't, you know, the, the sneaker money, it wasn't until sneaker money comes in and starts yep. making coaches the highest paid, you know, the highest employee paid, in the right, state, right? Like literally uh, the highest paid public employee in the state. That, it's football that or basketball. Things, yeah. That, 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 um, that it becomes so perverted, but at the same time, players were being held back and players were hurt by these yeah. things over the years. Players who, who couldn't, for one reason or another, make it through four years of school. If you, if, if they ran into some trouble you know, academically or socially and just couldn't, you know, didn't, didn't have a good college experience. And before Spencer Haywood came along and challenged the, the four years out of high school rule that the NBA had applied for its first 25 years you were screwed you just had to you had to play in the eastern league or the aau and mm-hmm. hope that the nba remembered you a couple of years later and most guys who that happened to and, and many of them let's let's be serious were black yeah. uh they would fall through the cracks they were at least in nba terms you know um so you know the, the, but you still you it's hard not to admire what what the Frank McGuire's and the Dean Smiths did at, at UNC and and starting these programs and and really coming up with a way to make them cohesive over generations of players over from from Donnie Walsh playing well Donnie played Donnie Walsh played at South Carolina but yeah the the the, the Billy Cunninghams yeah. and the and, and these players from the 50s and 60s at North Carolina Feeling like they all have this kinship with James Worthy and Michael Jordan and Rasheed Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse mm-hmm. all together. That, that is an amazing feat. And it, and it exists at those schools like, uh, like Carolina, Kentucky, Duke, mm-hmm. uh, you know, UCLA to some degree, although it's been up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's sort of sad to see it finally. I think it is going to be a thing of the past, yeah. uh, as, as, we progress here, but hopefully people will remember what it was like. Yeah, no doubt. I, I will point out um, the book does a great job of talking about like that the four corners that Dean Smith yeah. invented the four corners. No, he didn't. It was at a traditional black college 25 years earlier. And there's a lot of names that I consider myself a pretty big basketball fan had not heard before. I didn't know that the four corners was invented in 1947 by some guy. Really, really cool. And that stuff really resonated with me. Um, we're staying with a college game. Maybe my favorite podcast that I've ever hosted was with Bill Walton. 
Bill Walton invited me to his house, and I sat in his garage, and everything in his garage was, like, posters of, like, Mo Lewis and, like, UCLA stuff and Grateful Dead stuff. And then I stayed for lunch in his house, and it was the trippiest afternoon I've ever spent in my life, and it was amazing. And it was a spiritual journey, and I was crying the whole time, and it was incredible. And that dude, the way, the reverence that he had for Wooden was unlike anything I'd ever seen. You know, that he came from a family of educators in the first place. And Wooden described himself, always did. He said that, I, first and foremost, I was a teacher. That it wasn't about that I was sneaker contracts for champion. Yeah, he was trying to win championships, but he considered himself uh, an educator. And I knew this from talking to Walton and reading books or whatever, but uh, John Wooden never called a play. John Wooden never called a timeout. John Wooden never scouted his opponent. How the hell do you build a dynasty and have no regard who, who, for who's on the other side? I, I want you to try to explain this to me, Rafe, because he built this dynasty as if UCLA, it didn't matter. Like they were playing like the Monstars or the Children of the Poor, and it made no difference. They were going to rout them no matter what. Yeah, and, and I think Wooden is, is, turns out to be all, maybe even like the perfect metaphor for the, the paradox of college basketball, because as a coach and as an individual, People seem to agree, and everything I've read, or pretty much everything I've read, makes me believe that Wooden was the real deal in terms of his commitment to the purity of teaching, of the game, of process, of doing things step by step. The the, the legendary stories about him beginning his teaching of basketball with this is how you put on socks because if a player is not wearing his socks correctly Crazy. and it messes with his feet, he'll never be able to you know to to to, to play the game to run up and down. These uh, that stuff that's side of it is real uh and, and you can and you listen to guys like bill walton discuss it you listen to some of the the great they, they were great at distilling wisdom and and these life lessons there's a there's a quote in the book uh dale brown who became the head coach oh, at lsu mm-hmm. coach Shaq there mm-hmm. and 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 stanley chris roberts jackson, and, the great yeah, chris jackson was unstoppable. Like, un- like, the best college player i've ever seen but anyway yeah so Dale Brown, and he was a disciple of Wooden, was an assistant under Wooden at UCLA, and he, tell, he tells a, a story about Wooden near the end of Wooden's life, like 98-year-old John Wooden at a birthday party, uh, and, and, and Dale Brown goes to him and says, you know, hey, there, there are these new books coming out, talk, just sort of sullying your reputation a little bit, exposing the dark side of things that happened at UCLA. How come you never respond to that? How come any, and, and Wooden just comes out of nowhere with this amazing, like, like bulletin board material quote that he's like, Dale, when you live, when you're going to live in the public eye to some degree, you're going to receive, you know, way too much undue praise and an equal amount of uh, of unfair criticism, and it's wise not to take too much. Yeah, let let either one affect you too much. I paraphrase that, but that's basically what's said. It's just like, wow, that's perfect, Coach Wooden. They just they have this ability to turn everything into coach speak. That if you have ever played on a on a on a team in any organized setting, whether it was a high level or a rec league when you're eight years old, you recognize and it clicks. And you're like, oh man, I'm ready to go coach. Um, and Wooden, I think was the real deal in that regard. But the way that the, the, in that time, he was also allowed to be completely ignorant of how UCLA was acquiring all these amazing world level yeah. players. Lou Alcindor, Jamal Wilkes, Sidney Wicks, 
Bill Walton, Gail Goodrich, the, the, mm-hmm. these Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, the gre- the greatest college teams of all time, these these, in, these monster style talent rosters mm-hmm. that could win 88 games in a row, that could win consecutive championships over a decade that could do all this. And he didn't have to worry about that, uh, which was a great luxury for him because the way it was happening, we, we now understand was because of boosters, because of a wealthy Hollywood donors like Sam Gilbert, who's the famous sort of crook in this, in this mm-hmm, narrative mm-hmm. who was giving away, you know, whatever the players wanted was having players come party at his house was basically the, the bag man. Uh, and, and wouldn't there, there's a story, Dale Brown, tells it actually also in the book of when he finally decided to go confront Wooden about these rumors of what Sam Gilbert did for the program and 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 Wooden tells him well uh, yeah I'll tell you uh, he says okay Dale I remember one time watching the our, our women's team play during a hol- holiday tournament and two of our players walked by wearing leather like like giant leather jackets and leather suit like leather trench coats leather pants just the fanciest leather 80s or 70s <laughs> stuff you could imagine. Um, and he thought it clicked in his head. Hey, wait a minute. Those guys aren't that rich. I know these guys. They don't have money to go around buying leather pants. <laughs> and he asked his wife, his next time, hey, what did Sam Gilbert give us for Christmas this year? And she says, a couple of beautiful leather bags. And it clicks in his head that, oh, there might be something <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Um, and he goes to his athletic director and says, hey, I want you to – look into this or at least know about it because I don't want to get in trouble myself. I don't want our players to get in trouble. And the the AD says, coach, you just worry about coaching and I'll take care of the rest. So look, is it very convenient to, to say, okay, at that point he just said, sure, not my problem. And when, and went moved on coaching. Yes. And he probably did know that he had to know, yes. you know, that, that something that things were happening under the table, but in his era, he was never forced to to deal with it, so uh, we can. And that's that's how you build that team at that time. Is you can be the great teacher, and no one ever has to confront you with the reality of the dirty side of things that are happening under your responsibility, under your watch. I'm gonna try for hypothetical land now. I'm bad at hypotheticals, but maybe you're good. <laughs> we'll see. So the two coaches, the two guys who stand out to me as polar opposites in the college game. In terms of their reputation, in terms of their style of instruction, are John Wooden and Bobby Knight. And Wooden is this revered guy and loved his players and they loved him. And Bobby Knight literally strangled one of his players and berated them and, and dressed them down. And that was, and, and Bobby Knight was very successful as well. And Wooden went away a long time ago. And Bobby Knight, I remember Bobby Knight very well. I remember him coaching everybody from Isaiah Thomas to Cal Burchaney, a lot, lots of guys. Um, but notably, they're not coaching now in the, let's call it for better, lack of a better term, in the Instagram era. This is just a different kind of thing. Do you think, and I understand talent plays, but let's say that everybody has pretty good talent. Kentucky has talent, Duke has talent, UCLA has talent, Indiana has talent. Do you think that Bobby Knight and John Wooden, in a parallel universe where they're exactly the same way, where it's all homespun wisdom and putting on socks with John Wooden, and it's all, I'm going to kill you with Bobby Knight. Could that play? Would that work with Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett and Anthony Davis? Or is it just it's such a relic of the past that these guys would be laughed out of town and their teams would never go for it? Man, I, I, it's very hard to – well, look, they say that behind coach, behind door, closed doors, 
Coach K at Duke is one of them I mean, who played at West Point Bobby for Knight. Bobby Knight. Yeah. He is straight from the coaching tree of Bobby Knight. Mm-hmm. They say that behind clo- closed doors, Coach K has one of the, the nastiest foul mouths in right. basketball, tears into his players all the time, and really does try to hold them accountable in a, in a Knight-esque way. Military way, yeah. Right, yeah. Obviously not in... He, he he's not out here laying hands on players mm-hmm. Bobby Knight with, in, in Bobby Knight style. He doesn't have whatever, you know, pro, I, I don't want to, I don't, I hope it's not sounding like it diminishes it, but whatever problems with the, his temper yeah. that, that, that Bobby Knight had, he clearly had a problem there yes. that, that got him into trouble. Mm-hmm. I think that if you listen to his players like Quinn Buckner, Isaiah Thomas, the ones who succeeded under him, they talk about how hard it was. They also talk about how valuable it was to them to have done it. Now there has to be some Stockholm syndrome in there that like I survived this yes. henceforth. I am going to say that it was important. Like I have no other way to resolve the cognitive dissonance for all the pain <laughs> that I went through for four years with Bobby Knight, other than to say it made me the man I am the, and, and is partly responsible for some of my success. Um, so you, 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 you factor that in, but it's the fact still remains that the people who managed to survive Bobby Knight talk about him with a great amount of reverence and respect as someone who didn't compromise on principles, which if you look at, at today's college basketball, that is the story of every, every coach pretty much has to compromise on those principles to, to field a good team. And that's something that, that Bobby Knight never did. Could it work with today's one and done players who know that they're out of here? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't think so. It's just impossible. And, and I don't know if the, the John Wooden, the, 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 the grandpa stuff works either. I don't, I honestly, and this, he gets, a, he does get credit for this in the public, in the public imagination. It is Coach Cal. It's Calipari at, at, at Kentucky who has figured out the way of just being straightforward about the situation. Yeah. He's saying, look, you guys are the best talent on the planet. You're going to the NBA next year. Come here. I'm going to prepare you for the NBA and we're going to be a, a have a good chance of winning, you know, a mm-hmm. national championship, going to the final four, doing all those things. It is. And he is instead of instead. So if, if uh, two generations before him, John Wooden was the I'm, you know, he's he, his the way he the paradox uh Came, came out in, in Wooden through, I'm going to be blind to the dirty side of bas- of college basketball. Calipari's more like, I'm going to acknowledge the dirty side of basketball and just let it, let it sit there and we're going to work around it. Uh, so yeah, this is the reason why he, he, he's the, he's, he's the one and done king at the moment. I've read a ton of myth making about, you know, when Magic and Bird came into the NBA, that's right when I started following basketball, like watching tape delayed basketball on a Friday night when I was five or six years old, like that kind of stuff. And, but I don't remember the stuff that happened before that. There's a lot of myth making that goes on in terms of Magic and Bird. There was basketball before Magic and Bird, and then there was Magic and Bird. I read Seth Davis's book, which is very good, and there's a lot of tales about it. But, you know, Give us some perspective here. Where were we right before that national championship into the Celtics-Lakers rivalry? And then how thoroughly did that change the game once they established themselves, once they played the national championship game, and once they started playing each other in the finals, it seemed like every year? Yeah, I think that uh, the the 
part of the story that gets left out when we just talk about Magic and Bird arrive. They played in the, the great national championship mm-hmm. game in 1979, and then they saved the NBA going forward. The thing that we don't factor into that is the the ABA merger or joining the N, you know, the, the, the NBA absorbing the four remaining four four of the remaining ABA teams for the going into the 1976 season so like four years before Magic and Bird come in Dr. J. and that right Dr J George McInnes George Gervin yeah. uh you know Serious Maurice players. Lewis yeah. you know like true some of the guys who turned into some of the very best talent in the NBA mm. Michael Thompson yeah. the, the first year that the ABA teams you know, had after after they had joined the the NBA, both Denver and San Antonio won their won their divisions. Yeah. There they there were ABA players sprinkled throughout the all in NBA teams. These guys had this talent had always been there, but it it because of the split, it wasn't in the NBA for uh, close to ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also opened up the game. This was a lot of the these were a lot of the black players who might have gotten quoted out of the league in previous generations yeah. and the ABA sort of made it clear that the that the NBA could no longer be this slower whiter game that it had to that it had to let in the talent that was out there in the country uh, and and eventually that would mean uh, the talent that was out there in the world um so that with a few years of groundwork laid once the ABA teams, the the Nets, the you know the the Spurs, the Nuggets, the Pacers, with them in the NBA, I think that that sort of primed the NBA for the impact that Magic and Bird were going to have. That once now that now the league was this more athletic, faster, uh, more exciting, beautiful, graceful, above the rim product. And now and then in 1980, the two stars who were going to be the faces of that emerge. The coolest I've ever felt in my entire life. I can remember the exact moment that it was. I was living in Los Angeles and I was in my mid-twenties, and I would play pickup basketball at USC. And most of the kids were better than me, but I could hold my own. And I walked into the gym one day, and I was wearing the new answers, the Iverson shoes. Yeah. And a guy came over, probably 19, I played with him all the time, and he goes, damn, the new Ivos! And he got very excited about the fact that I was wearing Iversons. Maybe the only time I've ever been cool. I don't know. I love that it's, it's three, four, five pages in the book, but I love that it's there. That is Iverson one of the 10 best players? No, 20, no, 30, probably not. But there's something about him that's so transformational that here's a guy who weighed 160 pounds and just didn't care. He could do anything he wanted and would not back down from anybody and was like the toughest guy in the league and the smallest guy in the league. I struggle to think of another example in another sport of a guy who was so transformational in terms of the way that people consume the sport, the style. Like, if you think about baseball, Ken Griffey Jr. was a guy like that. People started wearing their hats backwards. Well, Ken Griffey Jr. is one of the best, like, ridiculously good. Like, he was the best player of his era, you know, until Bonds. Iverson was very good, but he wasn't, like, he probably wasn't even top five, really. Maybe, like, at his prime, like, prime, 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 he might have been. What is it? How did we get to Iverson 
affecting style, maybe even affecting style more than LeBron does in some ways. LeBron is like, you know, either the greatest or the second greatest player ever, but he doesn't seem to have had this visceral playground style effect on the game that Iverson did. How did we get there? What was it about this guy? Yeah, I mean, LeBron is is great, obviously, yes. one of the, if not, you know, he's, he's at this point now close enough to, 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 to get some people, I'm not going to do it, but get some people to say he's greater than Michael Jordan. He is. Uh, no. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, and, and, and all that, but he's not, he, he's not cool. He's influential. No. He's thoughtful. He's, he's a, a dad. Mom, he's a, yeah, but he's not, he's never been just, oh, this guy is so cool no. in the way that, that, that kids, not just not just white and black and different 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 races and ethnicities here in North America and the United States, but around the world. I I always think about this in the Philippines. It's when I was living there, working on Pacific Rims, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I was in a remote area of the country where you know, not walking through you know, a, a path along a, a river in the middle of a jungle near <laughs> a place called Lobok Bohol. And I'm walking on this path and I, 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 there's a thatch house next to the river and it has a cutout poster of Allen Iverson yes! on the outside wall <laughs> of this. I was like, oh my God, is every, I mean, this is, the, this is the reach of this man. And I would go, I would continue it through, I would keep encountering it all over the Philippines, whether I was in urban areas in Manila, I would talk to kids who are so young that they probably never saw Iverson play live. And you ask them, who is your favorite basketball player ever? They're still answering Allen Iverson, Great. the crossover, all this. So his, yeah. it, it is truly a worldwide and, 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 um, irresistible influence that he had. And it was, I think it was the size, the style of play, the fearlessness, the ability to just score at will, no matter how small you were. And, you know, if you were, if you're a coach, if you're a analyst, if you're taking the game and winning as seriously as possible, you don't choose Allen Iverson to start your team, to build your team around. He's very, he's a difficult player to play with, right? He's great. He, I mean, and, and was at, for I'd say in the prime of his career, a top five or three player, obviously yeah, right he has there, the one right MVP the top, to his I name. That's right, yeah. But but still, he's not. He was never the kind of guy you could build your dynasty around, you know. And it was a, it was an amazing feat that the that one year when they did get to the finals mm-hmm. with an extremely defensive team, you know, with Eric Snow and Tyrone Hill and Aaron McKee and George, you know, George Lynch, Geiger, all these guys around Iverson, where it was just like. I, Alan, you go get us 30. We're going to play lockdown defense and hope to win, you know, 80 to 75. Yeah. Um, but there was, you know, it's very hard to figure out how you fit an Allen Iverson into, into the Warriors today or any great passing team, the Celtics of the eighties, the Knicks of the seventies, the Spurs. He's too ball dominant. He's too inefficient. You know, there, there are all these things that there are too many drawbacks to, but, but the style, the way that he, you know, it, it just the, the, and the ability of the, I mean, there's something special and awe, awe inspiring about guys who can break down defenders with the dribble. Yes. Like it's just different Kyrie. from, you know, it's, exactly. It's cool to watch. The imagination, it, it's one of the, it's one of the most magical things mm-hmm. in basketball. And when they're as small as, as Kyrie Irving or Allen Iverson, the kind of shots and angles they have to use to get shots off and make them, 
are so different than anything else you see on the court. Is, is it better to be Kawhi Leonard and be able to just first, like, like, you know, jab step, your first step is incredible. You're long in every possible way, you know, one dribble and you just finish. Yeah. That's an easier way to score. That's <laughs> extremely efficient. That's better overall. But when you watch it, and I, I mean, I say that as a huge, enormous fan of Kawhi Leonard, the, yeah, the, the, sure. the, the economy of his game is, mm-hmm. is, is, is incredible, a thing to behold in itself, but it's not the, you, you don't, nothing made you ooh and ah like Allen Iverson. Totally agree. I will say it's funny. You said something about how he would struggle with the Golden State Warriors that he's too ball dominant, but it is the case that over the last decade or so, you could see the progression. Russ Westbrook is a descendant of Allen Iverson. Russ Westbrook probably outweighs him by 40 pounds, dunks on your head. I mean, like, just so strong. John Wall's a big guy despite being really fast, but ball dominant in the same way. And, you know, point guards weren't like that. Mo Cheeks was the point guard in the 80s, a completely unselfish player, distributor, whatever, and that's what you were called to do. And now we don't even talk about point guards. We talk about lead guards. We talk about guys that they might get you some assists, but the bottom line is, it's usage rate. It's this guy's going to run your offense. Dame Lillard is what a cool transcendent player he's become. So, so fun. But he's not your traditional point guard. Where are we at with that? Because it feels like in some ways it's in conflict with each other. Like you watch a guy like Westbrook or Lillard, and then you watch the Warriors, and you can see some of the same stuff where you've got smaller guys who could dominate the game, and but Curry kind of fits into the system of flow. So is it that now, and there's a whole, of course, the, the, the end of the book is really about small ball and where we're at. Do you need to have that great system for a small player to succeed in today's day and age? Or can Dame Lillard go get it, or Westbrook go get himself a couple titles at some point? Because it hasn't really happened to this point. John Wall hasn't won. Westbrook hasn't won. Lillard hasn't won. They're not exactly the same player. But the guys that have won tend to play within a system as opposed to, you know what, this is my game, it's my time. Yeah, it's, uh, well, first of all, I, I think the, what you, you made me think of what, this really sort of interesting thing of, about Iverson and, and the Warriors. And if you were trying to pick a player who probably the, the, the player, the first player since Iverson who's captured imaginations in any comparable way, it would be Steph Curry. And what's fascinating is that he does it in a way that is nothing really like Allen Iverson, right? He's, he, he is the, almost the, polar opposite of 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 Iverson in the way he certainly the way his public persona but also you know playing a similar position uh you know he's more he'll give up the ball and 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 keep cutting and go get it and 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 does and and does so and and his out you know obviously shooting outside is the first thing that he's going to do the the threat of his shot off the dribble or off of anything uh, anywhere in from 30 feet in is is what makes him makes everything else about his game so deadly Mm -hmm. uh whereas Iverson was it was so fast he was just going to he could get by you regardless yeah. whether he was shooting well or not. And he was never thought of as a great shooter first. Uh, but it's just interesting to think that like, you know, would, would, does Allen Iverson make any sense on a team like today's Warriors? No, but the guy who has captured the, 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 the public's imagination in the most comparable way is the guy who played the great player who makes that team tick. It's Steph Curry. It's interesting. Um, the idea could, uh, could could a Lillard or a John Wall or some of these other great lead guards, point guards, whatever we're calling them right now, uh, win championships? I think they can. It's just they, when it comes down to 
that's I, I actually like something that uh, Jeff Van Gundy says in the book, and he's not talking about these players. Mm-hmm. He's talking about sort of a previous generation of the great players who could never get over the hump versus Michael Jordan in the 90s. He's yes. talking about Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, yeah. all-time great players, John mm-hmm. Stockton, all these dream teamers basically. Uh, and he's saying, are they less great because they couldn't beat Michael Jordan? Obviously not. Like if you think about it, like – they are they are the same person, the same player they would have been with or without Michael Jordan. And I think a little of that applies to the situation of someone like Dame Lillard, who uh, you 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 listen to the way his teammates and coaches and the the front office at Portland talk about him, the way that he is that, that almost from the moment he set foot in their their gym after being drafted, mm-hmm. that he sort of was this at least within the organization, a transformational culture type player, mm-hmm. a leader who they all like just got all these guys to follow him. Who's so serious about getting better and winning and doing everything right. There's nothing you can point to there and say, Oh, Lillard just doesn't seem like the right kind of guy. Like no. He's the, or the right, or his skills are, or are outdated or whatever. It's just, it's the NBA. These are the best players. He's in playing the with world. Aminu and not Durant. That's what we're talking hey, right. about, basically. And there's another guy yeah. there. There's always, you know, there there happens to be another guy out there like Steph Curry who's just better. Who's yeah. who's just amazing. Like out, you know, Curry is not even. He does stuff that don't seem doesn't seem real on a basketball court. Yes. I mean, people from our generation. We'll look at every shot he takes is what we grew up being like, oh, that's a bad shot. That's a terrible <laughs> shot. Our coach bench us immediately. When we play high school ball, you're going to the He makes them all. Like, yeah. He, Steph Curry makes every game he plays, he makes one shot that would be the greatest shot a a, a, a guy whose career ended in college made in their entire career. Oh, yeah. Like he, he makes some – like the shot that, that you think – Oh man, I really pulled that one out of my ass. It'd be the like, greatest shot that like Clyde Drexler ever made in his career, like Hall of Famers ever made in right. their career. That's the uh, thing. So, so th- for players like Dame Lillard to not be able to get over the hump against a team led by Curry that also has Kevin Durant yes. and Clay Thompson, and you know, it's it's. I think that the Warriors are a historically great team, and and the, the players and teams that fall short against them, I don't judge them too harshly. So one last I have for you is about that style. You know, obviously personnel plays a big part, but look, I mean, Curry was a low draft pick and Draymond was lightly, well, relatively light regarded. And, and there's certainly an amount of system that goes into it and flow and what have you, but the game changes. It always does. You know, we had Russell and Chamberlain, we had Shaq, we have the Warriors now and things are going to progress. But at the same time, Teams are so focused on efficiency, and the bottom line is that a three is always better than a long two all the time. We've had so many progressions in the game. Is this the one that you can never put back in the bottle? Is the sport always going to be focused on three-pointers from now until the end of time? Or could we get to a point where something does change, where you look at it and you say, yeah, this is actually going to be our best way to win, and teams can win in a way that's not the Warriors' way? It's interesting. I, I, I mean, obviously at this point in time, the, the mathematical advantages of the three point mm-hmm. shot of, of pace with, of playing with pace in a league with a 24 second shot clock where if you hold the ball longer, you're going to, chances are you're going to have to put up tougher shots with yep. less of a chance of going in. So that part of the game, as long as those rules don't change, has sort of been figured out. Mm-hmm. And it's, and in that degree, I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. However, there will always be 
athletes. There will be special players who come along and somehow create a change. One thing I, I, one interesting thought, like sort of thought experiment is what would happen if Shaq came along today? I mean, I mean, let's, and let's be hopeful that Shaq's son, you know, is, his heart is in good shape, you know, gets, gets cleared and he, he manages to continue his basketball career. But should someone like Shaq who, if you plug, just dropped a, a late nineties, early two thousands Shaq into did into today's NBA. On one hand, you're thinking, okay, there's no one left in basketball who even has a hope of stopping him near the the basket. He is one dribble and a dunk. He could score a hundred, maybe. Like he could he could go if he was Foul, willing to run yeah. up and down the court that many times. Yes. Uh, he could conceivably get close to Wilt's record mm-hmm. in today's NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you you also have to think: Could he stay on the court? Would they run? Would today's teams, the pace they play at, the way they take advantage of slow-footed big men oh, yes. on defense, or or I mean, Shaq was. Had an amazingly explosive, but was well, yeah was ne- never put in a whole lot of effort to, to guard pick and roll. So we not laterally him. quick, like yeah. like Embiid, Porzingis, all these guys could take him off the dribble all day long. Right. So so would someone would 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 a prime Shaq get played off the court in certain situations yeah. in today's game? Probably he would. It's interesting. So it might not be the the rebirth of the dominant big man, another uh, another athlete who is so outstanding that he just changes everything around him uh but i think it'll be you know we we were starting to see it with with the teams that can put together these sort of equally long and skilled switching defenses if anything is going to 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 force a change it will be something i think it'll be something like that where all of a sudden you they can you you can't just engineer decent three-point looks against them uh and, and they're going to be able to switch and stick with whoever you put them whoever they get you know they get stuck on defensively and and force you into tough shots now that requires to eventually getting enough players who fit that profile right there is no that that doesn't exist currently you can't get enough guys who are who can you know handle shoot pass you know, make plays think on both ends of the floor. Kawhi. Effectively, right, yeah. If you Clone can get, Kawhi. Right, you get five Kawhis or, or five, you know, uh, even at a, you know, obviously you scale that down to the Trevor Ariza's, you know, but Trevor Ariza is about the floor for that, right? Or yeah. Lukumba Mute, these guys, the poor guys, yeah. who, you know, the poor Rockets who lost <laughs> both of them over the summer. They're not doing um, so good anymore, but yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that, that level of three and D wing would be sort of like your floor and yep. Kawhi would be the high, Kawhi and LeBron at the top of That's that. Right. Um, are we ever going to see teams roll out five, seven uh, lineups of, of eight guys who all kind of fit in that range? Hmm. <laughs> Things would be different. If so, I guess you could say that Toronto is getting closer there. They've assembled a lineup that's yeah, close CSM to that. Sam and guys like um, that. They've got some athletes who can really defend. But it's still not quite, you no. know, it's not, it's not, it's not enough to change what the Warriors are doing so far. Mm. It's a lot, man. I could keep going forever. Uh, the book is great. It's basketball love story. It's Jackie McMullen, Ray Bartholomew, and Dan Clores. Some of the stuff we didn't even get to. There's so much good stuff about the women's game, which frankly just doesn't get covered enough. I learned so much about like Ann Myers. Super interesting. Super super interesting. Uh, 
absolutely worth checking out. And uh, the Doc series, too, right? It's an ESPN film series, and people can watch it that way. As you know, hold the book in front of you, watch the series, and all that good stuff. It's really cool, and uh, you know they they picked a good guy to be involved in this because I know you, I know how enthusiastic you are about the game. It shows in Pacific Rims, and uh, it's really cool that you got to to uh, really put your stamp on this as well and curate it so well. So, Rafe, uh, job well done, man, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was a it was a dream project, Jonah, and uh, it gave me a great excuse to you know get to talk and catch up with you for an hour or so, man. It's good to talk to you. 